So the big question is this. How are candidates like us, who don't have big money donors, who are spending money out of our own pockets to get elected, how do we get our message out, raise enough money to win, target the right voters, and yet still remain true to what got us into politics to begin with? That is the question, and this podcast will give you the answers. My name is Matt Wyatt, and welcome to Campaign Secrets. Hello, everybody, and welcome to another edition of Campaign Secrets. This is Matt Wyatt. I hope everybody's doing well right now. We're recording this in July of 2020, and it's a very challenging time for all of us in this country, in this world, and it's a very challenging time for those of us who are running for election and those that are helping people run for election. We have to think of creative ways, ways to reach out to voters that we never had to even think about before. But I believe when we get through this, when this campaign cycle is over, we're, we're all going to be stronger for this, especially in the political world, because we're going to be utilizing tools that are, we're going to use going forward. And then we're going to marry that up with tools that we've always used, um, which is door to door and direct contact and, and having those rallies again. Because when we have both of those things, it's going to make us more effective campaigners, more effective communicators, and it's going to reach voters where they're at. So today's episode. I'm very happy to to interview Hal Machow. Hal is a true pioneer in political consulting. He's someone that was the first person to really use data to show results. Uh, he's a direct mail uh, specialist. He got started in, in raising as a fundraiser using direct mail to raise money, but then moved on to political direct mail and started a great uh, company called The November Group. And then, and then later went on to uh, to form MSHC Partners, which is a firm that really pioneered the use of statistical modeling and control group experiments in politics. Before then, that wasn't really done. And there's so many people out there that are are selling our snake oil salesmen in politics that say, well, this works, but there's no really no real proof behind it because after the election is over, whether you win or lose, you pack up and you go somewhere else. Hal always called people out on that bullshit. He always said, you know, if we're going to work in politics, we're going to be professionals. This is going to be an actual profession of political consulting. There has to be proof in what we're doing. And he started using models and control groups and using statistics and data to prove how to not only identify voters, but how to persuade them and move them. Move them. And his landmark work in modeling voter list for the Nash Democratic National Committee, it set fundraising records in the 80s and 90s that will that still stand today. And we talk about all the things and the 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 magic and the people that are that are raising money right now. It really goes back to Hal Machow, and his clients have have, have been some of the biggest names in politics. He ran Al Gore's first campaign for U.S. Senate. He's worked for the Democratic National Committee. He's worked for several other groups. And I think you're really going to enjoy this interview and learn a lot. doesn't matter what you're running for. doesn't matter what political party you belong in. You need to hear from some of these people that have come before that really have set, set the table to what we're talking about now in political campaigns. So I hope you, you enjoy this interview. So I have the great, great good fortune to speak with someone who is a legend in the political consulting universe. And that's Hal Malchow, who is, uh, is a direct mail expert, uh, but also is a little bit of a data scientist. Uh, he's an innovator, someone that's really revolutionized voter contact, and has, has, has been one of the few that have moved the ball down the field for, for politics and political consulting. 
and, and trying to ID voters and, and find a way to get them out to vote and to persuade them to vote for his clients. So, Hal, uh, welcome to the show, and uh, how are you doing today? I'm doing great. I'm doing great. Um, you know, it gets a little tiring being in your house all day, but uh, <laughs> um, yeah, I can't complain. Now, you're down in New Mexico right now? Is that where you're at? Yeah. Yeah, we moved um, We moved from Washington, D.C. to uh, Santa Fe, New Mexico about a year ago. Um, I really got tired of having a front row seat to watch what was happening um, to, to, you know, America and our democracy and all, all of this. It was, um, it was a little much. We're, we're happy to be here. Well, New Mexico is a beautiful state. Now, you're a Mississippi boy, though, right? I am. I grew up in Mississippi. A little, little different climate than New Mexico. <laughs> and your first campaign you worked for, I think I read, was, was for Nixon when you were a little boy. Yeah, I was, um, you know, a lot of people spend a lot of their lives searching for what they want to do with themselves and what their talents are. Uh, I knew in the first grade I wanted to do something with politics. I can actually relate to that. I can actually relate to that. It, once it gets in you and you get a, and you get kind of hooked by it, it never leaves you. Boy, that's right, and that's good fortune to know early. Yep. So what got you into politics when you got to be an adult? You went to law school, but then what got you into wanting to work for campaigns? I've just always wanted to work for campaigns, and I was never um, attracted by being a, a candidate. Mm-hmm. So um, uh, that was the thing to do, and and I was actually was actually never that um, um, uh, that attracted to government either. You know, it's so much more fun and so much easier to write the promises than to have to keep them. <laughs> I think that's probably true. <laughs> and also, you you over the years now, you were Al Gore's first campaign manager for U.S. Senate when he first ran yes, for Senate. Okay, that's correct. So he uh-huh. was a congressman for a couple of terms, and then he ran for his dad's old seat for the U.S. Senate. Right. What year was that? Yep. That was uh, 1984. I'd been run. I'd run three campaigns in Mississippi and lost every one of them. Uh, but the last candidate I worked for was close to his sister and her husband, who lived in the Mississippi Delta, and who had watched my work firsthand. And also Bob Squire, mm-hmm. who was one of the leading media consultants in that day, had handled the governor's race that I managed in Mississippi. And uh, so he spoke really well of me. His sister spoke really well of me. And I had a um, an interview with him. And he says, uh, he says to me, Hal, you know, a lot of people say nice things about you. But what am I going to tell my donors when they hear that uh, I've hired someone who lost three straight campaigns. <laughs> and I said, uh, Congressman, uh, you tell them everybody in the state of Tennessee thinks you have this thing wrapped up with a bow on top and tell them you hired the hungriest son of a bitch in America. <laughs> he laughed and hired me. Well, bless his heart. Now, he's also kind of a, a data nerd as well. It, it seems like that data and science is something that he, has interested him. He 
he is really one of the smartest people I have ever met. And his, his, you know, intelligence is a very unique thing and a very individual thing. And he was, uh, he was really knowledgeable about science, religion, philosophy, um, many, many other fields. I, I, I think his intelligence was probably not as high in politics as it was in so many other areas, mm-hmm. uh, which I think caused him to be cautious in these campaigns. Yeah, it, which, it always uh, it always seemed like he didn't. In the, in trust the end, his was instinct. probably his downfall. Right, I think it always seemed he didn't trust his own instinct. Unlike Bill Clinton, who I think just has a natural instinct to you know, or George W. Bush for that matter, has a really natural instinct for people. And politics and emoting, and never it never seemed like Al Gore had a had that necessarily. Um, no, no, he was. They they would say in comparing him with Bill Clinton that uh, um, you know the advanced people would set out a route and they would say what you're going to do and who you're going to talk to and how long you're going to shake hands, and Al Gore would go and do that by the letter, comma, and period. And uh, Bill Clinton wouldn't pay a bit of attention to it at all. Yeah, he would just freelance the whole way. Well, let me ask you this: you, you know, how many years altogether have you worked in politics? How many decades has it been? Well, you know, it it kind of started in 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 my twenties. Uh, I ran a my first campaign. I ran a campaign for attorney general in Mississippi. That would have been. 1975. Okay. So, uh, you know, 40 something years. Yeah. And in, in, in all of those years, you know, the political consulting industry has just exploded. And, you know, I think it started off with a lot of folks knowing Matt Reese and others that kind of coined the term. And, but you know, as well as I do, there's a lot of shysters out there and people that, that say that, certain things uh, are the best way to get votes, but with, without a lot of proof behind it. And I, one thing I really respect about you is that you've always sought the truth as to what works and what doesn't work and trying to put proof behind that. Uh, would that be a fair assessment? Yes. And, and I would say the, I would say that enterprise has come a long, long way. We now have on the democratic side, we have a group called um, the analyst Institute. Mm-hmm. Uh, I would say that in their data bank, the Analyst Institute probably has about 1,500 experiments on persuasion, on turnout, on all sorts of tactics where they've pulled control groups um, to measure the impact of, uh, 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 of, of what they were testing. So, so let's say you wanted to write a letter to voters and tell them that Election Day is coming up that's really important, they should do their civic duty and vote. And so you might send 100,000 letters, 100,000 voters, the letter. And you might have 60,000 voters who don't receive the letter, but are pulled randomly from the same group. Then after the election, you go and you look and you say, what was the turnout among the people who got the letter? And what was the turnout among the people in the control group? And, and you, can actually, you can actually measure the impact to a fine point, you can look at what the what the treatment cost, and you can you can break it all the way down to saying 
that if you did this in this situation, here's what it costs to produce one additional vote. Um, and, you know, the persuasion is messier. It's a little harder and more expensive. But basically, um, everything's been measured. And, and, you know, some of it's not clear. Uh, uh, there are a lot of outstanding questions, and there are always innovations uh, uh, that can be measured. But we know a lot these days about what works and what doesn't work in terms of turnout and persuasion. What are some of the things that you wish you would have known when you started this business that, that we know now? When it, uh, when sure. It, I, w- I wish I had have known, but, but, but I wouldn't trade the experience oh, of, right. uh, of being in the middle of the learning for anything. This was, uh, uh, this was very exciting. I was, a, I was one of the original founders of the Analyst Institute, and I, and I, I was actually doing some experiments within my firm. Uh, to measure this stuff uh, before uh, we even started the Analyst Institute. And you even paid for some of the experiments on some some of the campaigns because it, you know, a lot of the campaigns are not, uh, you know, they're not wanting to spend a lot of money on doing experiments. And I think when you talk about control groups, that means you're leaving some voters out. So, you know, actual campaigns, it's hard, I think, to, to probably convince folks on those campaigns to do that, whereas the Analyst Institute could, you know, do these experiments without necessarily costing. Yeah, the, yeah. But you, just by their nature, the the campaigns are going to have a shorter term. Um, um, they're going to have shorter term goals, and 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 if anything might interfere with their success on election day, they're not going to do it. On the other hand, you take these nonprofit groups that that are increasingly. Uh, a bigger and bigger portion of the money that's spent in these campaigns, you know, a group like the AFL-CIO or Planned Parenthood or the Sierra Club um, and all the groups on the uh, Republican side as well, they're spending a lot of money and they have a longer term vision because uh, they want to do all of this more effectively and they want to learn and they want to prepare themselves for the next election. Where's the candidate? He may not have another election. Uh, so that's where most of the experiments come from, right? Is independent expenditures, right? Now, some of the experiments that that you have done uh, on get out the vote in particular. Now, in uh, the Victory Lab, they talked about uh, a consultant in Michigan named Grebner, and you had who had these experiments that really increased voter turnout by a really large margin, but they were heavy handed. Tactics, um, basically, uh, it, kind of threatening that we've got your voter file and we're going to uh, to view it after the election. Um, but it, it increased turnout by by a larger more margin than pretty much anybody had ever done. Now, you had you know, did you read that those results and sort of take it and try to soften what uh, those tactics were <laughs> in your races? Yeah, yeah. but the, right, right. The the, the so first, first we learned that if you uh, if if you show voters a list of all their neighbors and whether or not they were voting, this has a very dramatic effect on turnout. But uh, but getting someone to actually do that letter and put their name on it is uh, is a much more difficult proposition. Right. Uh, so so we went through a whole series of 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 innovations. You you know the first and the softest one was. Uh, Thank you for voting, you know, and we go, thank you for voting in 2008. Uh, um, and 
you, you know, letting the voter know that you actually looked at the voter voter list and, and saw that the voter had voted. And um, uh, um, and this worked all right. Um, uh, but but gradually, gradually, some other things that were a little tougher, but um, um, but which groups were willing to do, particularly um, the, I think the gold standard now is the report card letter where you uh, send the voter a table with four recent elections and whether or not they voted in each of those elections. And then you have a little graph at the bottom, a bar graph that shows what the average uh, uh, level of participation is for um, for all voters in their state and compares that with um, uh, with the voter you're mailing. Um, and, and this works really well. It, it, in a lower turnout election, you can get three percentage points left. In a presidential, probably maybe 0. 0.7. Mm-hmm. But with all the money that gets spent in a, in a presidential, um, uh, the cost per vote on, on uh, 0.7 is it's really pretty much a bargain compared <laughs> compared to all the money that's getting thrown on television and not, not moving anybody. So... Um, um, in any anyway, the, the yeah, the report card is is the basic tactic, but but there's just all kinds of variations. Um, um, uh, some groups are sending. We call this social pressure mail, mm-hmm. and some groups are sending four, five, six pieces of social pressure mail and getting respectable results even on the last of the series. What kind of social pressure outside of showing your voting record? are you talking about? Oh, you might have a, I think there's a version that says missing and, you know, you have an empty voting booth and, and you tell them that you, you tell the voter that, you know, they didn't vote in the last election and it's really important that they get out and vote in this one. Um, I, I, I can't remember all mm-hmm. the variations, but, 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 but they're all things along that line. Um, uh, telling the voters something about the voters' voting record, and um, and, and 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 letting letting the voter know that you know whether or not they're voting. That's the key. Right, right. And I I think you know one thing that was missing probably over the years with with some of the consulting is is taking some of the social science and some of the psychology that. Um, that some of the research that was out there and sort of marrying those two things up. I think a lot of people would think that if you tell people, you know, your vote counts and, you know, very few people vote, that actually has the reverse effect. If you tell people, hey, the election's coming up, a lot of people are going to be voting, you know, you know, you know, in compared to their lack of voting, that actually works is is more of a bandwagon yeah. effect. And I think a lot of people would think it was it would be the opposite. Um yeah. Right. Yeah. And in, in, in fact, to, to pick up on that point, um, we find that, that the increase in voting among the people in the treatment group who get these these letters um, uh, about their voting record, the increase is higher among voters who vote more frequently. Mm-hmm. Um, they get this piece of mail and 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 they're proud of their record and they want to keep it up and it, it encourages them. Uh, to vote at at a that, to increase their voting at a level that's higher than those for whom 
the uh, communication might be considered sort of a shaming or, mm-hmm. um, or, or a negative in the sense that you're telling them they're not voting. Right, right. I mean, I think it is. I think shame is is probably the most powerful <laughs> tool you can use in almost anything as a psychological uh-huh. weapon. And I don't think it's necessarily a weapon in this case at all. But it's it's when you definitely compare yourself to other citizens and you're coming up short. You know, I think that that's, that's uh-huh. more powerful than you know a picture of of something patriotic or something you know to try to grab their attention but, but, to go vote. Yeah, but. But but actually, the voters who get the pieces that show that they're not coming up short, they're coming up larger because they're voting more than average, um, they get influenced to turn out more than the people who are shamed. It works on both ends, but uh, um, the pride seems to work a little better. It, it, it's, this whole thing is, is interesting because really, in the earliest experiments, um, the Mail really did not work as a method of uh, of voter turnout. You know, you told them do your civic duty, go vote. Mm-hmm. Minimal impact. Uh, the issues, surprisingly, were not um, producing much turnout. Certainly, some level that was probably a third of what you would get from social pressure. Mm-hmm. So you send someone and you say, "Well, we've got a gun problem, or climate change, or or." or jobs, or, you know, whatever the message might be, any ideological message uh, was not nearly as effective as the social pressure. I would I would agree that people overestimate issues and how they motivate people uh, to come to vote. Mm-hmm. Now, you were one of the, the real founders at looking at micro-targeting and trying to, mm-hmm. I know the Widen race was uh, one of the first ones that I had read about in Campaigns and Elections Magazine years ago. Um, that you had that you had adopted this tactic, and, and I think a lot of people mistrusted it, or mis- I would say misunderstood what that was. Can you explain a little bit about it and sort of the power of it? Yeah, um, what we were doing is, you know, we weren't doing anything innovative. We were just moving techniques that had already revolutionized the uh, commercial retail mm-hmm. transaction. Um, we're moving it into the political arena. You know, you you had all of a sudden you had these big databases that were put together by these catalog companies and insurance uh, uh, direct mail and all all of this commercial uh, credit cards, all of this commercial mail that was being driven not so much by the message, but by the targeting. They would take information on, on each household, each individual in the household, and build predictive models to say, how likely is this person to uh, uh, to buy from our catalog, and um, how much are they likely to spend? And, and, and this is what made the direct marketing industry so successful. This was going on in the late 80s. It was really 2000... Six, I would say, before all of this really came of age and became used in a widespread way, and particularly in 2008, where the Obama campaign uh, totally embraced these methods. But but the um, uh, what we're trying to do here in the early 90s is suddenly we have voter list, and we have attached to the voter list we have census data, and in some cases we had the same commercial data. 
that was being um, being used in the uh, catalog industry. Uh, so we took this information and used different methods of statistical analysis to come up with predictions. How likely is this person to vote on election day? Um, how likely is this person to be a Democrat or a Republican? How likely is this person to be undecided in this election? And then um, there was a lot of skepticism about it. There was the um, precinct targeting, which was based on precinct characteristics, which are averages of voter behavior in a unit that's generally four or 500 people. Um, this was well established. Everyone knew it. Everyone understood it. And there were people who practiced it and made their living doing it. And they were not, uh, they were not welcoming to uh, more advanced targeting. But the NC, the NCEC or the, the, the neighbor, NCEC. Yeah. Right. Yeah. That when I first got into politics, that was the, you know, the gold standard. <laughs> you just looked at neighborhoods. And, right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And what you're talking about is looking at individuals, not neighborhoods. And, yeah. That's right. Yeah. That's right. Moving, moving from the, um, the precinct to the, uh, uh, to the individual. That, that was the key thing. The, n- now, for most campaigns, except for smaller campaigns and maybe some lower turnout elections, this is all pretty easy because uh, if you have a state party voter list, you're going to have this data already on it. So you'll have, uh, at least for the general election, you'll have, um, by each voter, you'll have a percentage. And that's the, the, the probability that that voter is going to show up and vote in the um, um, in the election. And uh, so so you can look at that and you can go, all right, I want to target people who are between the 30 and the 70 percent chance of voting or, mm-hmm. you know, whatever, uh, whatever range you select. And all you have to do is just, you know, is just run a select on that criteria. The um, you'll also have likelihood that the person is a Democrat, likelihood that the person is a Republican. And, um, and, and this information is helpful. You, can, um, you could target for persuasion people who are, let's say, you know, let's say between a 30 and a, um, and a 70% chance of being a Democrat. And, um, and you know, that's a reasonable approach to targeting. It's a little messy because when you interview voters about this subject, a lot of voters are these days are a little embarrassed by their own party and are a little reluctant to say, oh, I'm a, I'm a strong Democrat, even though they vote Democratic all the time. Mm-hmm. The, um, the, uh, um, uh, so th- there's fewer people really in the middle than these numbers predict. Uh, but it's it's the best information you have, and it's a good place to start. So they get that number, I guess, by the, the number of times you vote in a primary. And also, do they include any consumer data to come up with that 30 to 70 range? They, or how do they do that? So so you, you, get, you get a voter list. Nowadays, you might have a thousand pieces of data on each person. And, you know, and, and this sounds like, you know, this sounds like big state or, you know, invasion of privacy, mm-hmm. but 
But most of the information is modeled information. So you have income, you have an income estimate for somebody, and it's based upon their age, where they live, things like this. But it's it's not actual knowledge of whether uh, uh, of of what their actual income is. And some of this data is better than others. You'll of course you'll have age, you'll have voting history. You know, do they which party primary do they vote in? Mm-hmm. But that's already cooked into the uh, um, into the modeling scores. Mm-hmm. The, the um, what we found when we got all this commercial data is not much of it was very useful. Um, there's some things marital status. This is a nice predictor of being a Democrat or Republican. It's also a nice predictor in terms of turnout. Um, but but most of the data turned out to be pretty useless for the purpose of politics. Mm-hmm. You know, are they a homeowner or a uh, a renter? Well, um, I think part of the problem is uh, maybe home ownership is something that's a little helpful. Um, uh, but the data was messy, right? It wasn't always um, as accurate as you would think. This is particularly true with marital status models. They did a good job of predicting who was married, but there was a big residual that um, um, it was hard to sort out. So, and, and a lot of it, if if they said you were single, there were about a fifty percent chance you were they were right. Gotcha. So you know, basically, everybody has a FICO score. Um, is how, kind of how mm-hmm. I look at it now. And, you know, I get van information and, you know, I, I was really obsessed with, with that sort of thing too. But I think, you know, I found that you're right. Like what's the difference between someone who's 30 to 50% Democrat or 30 to 50% Republican? Like, what does that even like really mean? Does that mean, I mean, it, it tells me not a whole lot um, because what, how do what I persuade it tells you oh. is that you are not you are not an individual that they can cleanly with the data they have place into either party. Mm-hmm. Do you so? What's your recommendation for having this type of information, which is at your fingertips now for really any campaign you know, running for a partisan office? Let's say someone's running for a state representative office. What kind mm-hmm. of data and what should they be looking at? Let's say it's a, let's say it's a, it's a tilt Republican district in the Midwest or the South, but you know Democrats, you know, can win it, but they need to get people more than just solid Democrats. Like, what kind of data do they need to look at and scores of voters and what would be worth their while? Well, I, yeah, I think I think the partisan data is probably the best thing you have to work with. If you are in a district that that leans Republican, then um, uh, uh, then instead of kind of looking at people who are thirty to seventy percent chance of being a Democrat, you might look at people who are fifteen to uh, uh, fifteen to seventy percent chance of being a Democrat. Because you have to get Republicans to win, right? Right. right. That's so, true. So, so you you have to you have to tilt your targeting ranges to fit the um, uh, to fit the district. So it's not just the the registration because a lot because some states don't have registration down, but a lot of states do. Like Kentucky, you know, we know the registration, but you're talking about that will vote Democrat, not just what they're registered. Because a lot of people in the South, they'll they're registered one way, but they vote another way. 
you know, they, they may even vote Democrat yeah, in the Democratic primary right. for and local offices, but never yeah. vote for president. Uh, you know, I haven't looked at the Kentucky file recently, but but I remember looking at it once, probably 10 years ago, that at which time Kentucky had become pretty much a Republican state. Um, the vast majority of registered voters were registered as Democrats. Right. And this is just residual, you know, people hadn't changed. So I, the modeling, the modeling actually is usually based on interviews, large sample interviews with voters where the voters tell you what they are. And, um, and then you take that data and apply it. And if you're in a state where, um, where the registration figures may reflect, um, a time in the past, mm-hmm. rather rather than more accurately today, the the, um, um, the then it'll take into account the party registration, but that party registration won't be a a conclusion. It'll be part of the prediction. So maybe more sample, more people to interview, a lot more interviews, but less questions. Yeah, yeah, but yeah, yeah. To unearth that. Yeah, yeah. You'd you'd have to do at least five thousand interviews. Yeah. Yeah, and and I think that I think that's absolutely right on target. I just think I think that it that's probably a hard sell for a lot of you know state legislative races. Okay, now we have to do five thousand interviews. That's you know even though you're doing shorter questions, but you're getting more people. But, but the data but, that you're getting yeah. is going to be much more targeted and much more valuable. Yeah, but 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 the the state representative uh, candidate doesn't have to spend that money. He, uh, he just goes and gets a uh, a voter list, and these model predictions are already on it because the state party, the national party, the uh, voter file vendor, they, they all have an um, important interest in making this data available and spend a lot of money to do so. Gotcha. gotcha. So where do you... Where do you see... It seems like things have... You know, p- the political world is behind you know the private sector in in a lot of things. I think it didn't used to be that way. I think people in the private sector always looked to some of the cool things that are going on in politics as being innovative, but really it's turned on its head and the, the private sector is far more innovative. Like even in social media, I read the other day that uh, companies, big brands are spending 80% of their dollars just on social media, where political campaigns are spending 20% of their dollars on social media and and digital and so if you know if we're trying to to do what the you know Coca-Cola is doing and some of these other big brands um we're not doing that you know we're still kind of stuck in some of the older ways of communicating do you suggest that politics needs needs to look at the private sector and say okay we need to emulate their ad no. spend okay no we we have a very different problem than 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 most private sector um, uh, companies who are doing product marketing. Uh, I, you, you know, back in the day, I don't know if you remember this, uh, but but one time, I guess about 20, 30 years ago, um, Pepsi was doing all these uh, taste tests around the country. Yes. And you, you would put on a blindfold and you would test the Pepsi, you would test the Coke, and you would say which one you thought tasted better. Well, they were winning all the the taste test, in part because they were a sweeter beverage. And on your first sip 
the sweeter beverage always tastes better. You know, on your third mm-hmm. or fourth sip, uh, it might be a different proposition. So they were really hurting Coke, and Coke came out with the new Coke. Right. And uh, and and it it turned out to be a a blunder that actually helped them a whole lot because once they came out with the with the new Coke, everyone demanded the old Coke, and all the old Coke sales went through the roof. Mm-hmm. Now the 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 importance of this story is this. Now there are 30 something different kinds of Coke you can purchase. What has happened in the commercial world is we've moved to a niche marketing world. And but this doesn't really apply much to politics because we have to get 51%. And in terms of marketing problems, we're like that whale that's stranded on the beach. We, we, how we have to do things is very different from, uh, from selling the Ford Bronco, where if you've got a point and a half market share, they would, uh, uh, they would do a big parade and throw rose petals in front of your feet. Mm-hmm. The, uh, and, and the digital, the digital has worked. It's worked well in politics for raising money and for, um, um, recruiting supporters and building email lists. It has been phenomenally ineffective for persuasion or turnout. Um, and, and part of the reason is, I think internet advertising does a good job of reminding people to do what they already wanna do. But the, the amount of information you can communicate in these internet ads is so minimal that getting someone to change their opinion about a candidate or a party or voting or not voting is just insufficient. Um, so the, the the internet stuff has not worked in the same way as the um, as, as perhaps it has in the uh, commercial world. The other thing that I think is really important to understand is 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 that we have undergone a major transformation and how people make decisions about who to vote for. You know, when I first got into politics, you have, we had these senators and Senator Hatch and Senator Kennedy on opposite sides of, of uh, almost every issue would get together and come up with a compromise plan. And everyone, everyone would kind of work together, not impeded or shackled by partisan beliefs um, to help the country. This does not exist anymore. And what has happened is that voters have gravitated to one side or the other. And the percentage of voters who are sitting there in the middle, who are really up for grabs in a race, has been decreasingly small. I know that someone did a study on the 2016 election and and, uh, calculated that of all the voters in the United States of America who cast a vote on election day in 2016, only 10% voted for candidates of a different party. And in that election, for the first time in American history, not a single state voted for a senator of a different party than the party that they supported in the presidential race. Hmm. Um, and, and I think that persuasion, I think more and more 
voters are making a party choice. And look at that special election they had in Alabama, you know, where Roy Moore mm-hmm. was, you know, he was caught, you know, chasing teenage girls, embezzling from his foundation. He um, um, he was kicked off the Supreme Court for not reading the Constitution, although that may not be a major crime in Alabama. <laughs> the uh, But he got 48 and a half percent of the vote. Yeah. Why? Because he had an R beside his name, and Alabamans couldn't bring themselves to vote for a D. The uh, and and so increasingly, that deci- the decision about who to vote for is um, is made long before the voter knows anything about the candidates. Um, and persuasion, uh, there's a lot of studies on this. The persuasion has become much more difficult. Um, and most persuasion campaigns, particularly in an election where voters have a lot of information about the candidates, um, it's become very difficult, if not impossible in some cases. I don't think any average, yeah, I could be wrong. Someone may come up with a just blockbuster ad, but I'll be surprised if in uh, 2020, in this election coming up, if any of the advertising makes any substantial difference. I think one of the things we've learned with all this measurement is that for political consultants, the things we do are having less and less of an effect. I think you're absolutely right, and especially on the, on the persuasion aspect of it and figuring out who is even out there to persuade. Because mm-hmm. we're all siloed. I mean, you know, we either watch MSNBC or we watch Fox uh, or we go to church or we don't go to church. And that that pretty much tells right. you who's going to vote for who. And mm-hmm. and if you're going to go to vote, you fall in those categories. There are very, there's very little in between. So, I mean, I guess the strategy that you're that you're saying, and I'm, I'm beginning more and more to believe as each election cycle goes on, is more of a mobilization effort um, with your resources that you have. Finding out those that mm-hmm. could be with you, especially in off-year elections, this really is, matters more, is finding those that would be with you if they just go to vote, if you can just get them to vote. Um, and you don't have to spend yep. your time persuading them to vote for you. It's just getting them to vote. That matters more than spending mm-hmm. a lot of effort saying, okay, who can I go to to talk to say, hey, this is my education plan. This is <laughs> this is what I believe, you know, and that is just a, just a far harder road to hoe, harder ho- a road to hoe um, than mobilization. Right. Yeah. I mean, I think I think one of the things we've learned testing all these different things is that the um, the turnout strategies and tactics have have uh, have been surprisingly simple and straightforward. The uh, the effect of persuasion tactics um, um, is a lot more complicated and your your effects are often zero. Yeah, I mean, it certainly seems that way. And you look at the the Roy use the, the Alabama example. I mean, do you think there's any chance at all that that Democrats can keep that seat um, on a presidential year? We had more African American turnout in that special election, that off year special election, than than the presidential year election for African American voters. If they get that kind of a turnout in a presidential year, 
um, just focusing on turnout in a state like Alabama or a state like Kentucky against Mitch McConnell, do you think that that there's even a chance for some of these races to be flipped if if the Democrats just focus on turnout? Um, well, I think turnout is a good thing to focus on. You, you know, there are problems with the turnout tactics. I mean, in a presidential election, you know, we do the first piece of mail and uh, and we get seven tenths of a percentage point lift, which is which is good. And if you get enough of that and you pile on additional pieces of mail, you might get the whole um, level up to two and a half percent. But then there's some additional math because these people you're voting are not rock solid. They're not 100 percent Democrats or 100 percent Republicans. Mm -hmm. They're probably 80 percent. And and so your effects in increasing turnout are diluted. Um, and, and so instead of getting um, um, a 1% lift, you get a 0.8% lift. because Well, actually, it's more than that. You get a 0.6% lift because you've got 20% of the people who you turned out are Republicans, and they cancel out 20% of the Democrats. Mm-hmm. So it's all pretty tough, you know. It, we're spending more and more money, and uh, the consultants are getting richer and richer. And you know, I I, I don't begrudge them their success, but uh, but but it, we're all nibbling around the edges. Right now, the the information that the analysts now, now here's here's <laughs> the exception. Here's the exception: a primary where the candidates aren't well known, mm-hmm. and you have to educate the voters about who they are. And you get to start with kind of a blank slate, much easier on the persuasion side. Yeah, and that's where the uh, marketing really but, comes in. I mean, someone like Donald Trump could win the Republican nomination by focusing on, you know, immigration in, in, a, in a very hard mm-hmm. way. And in, in, in the Democratic side, someone like Bernie Sanders could focus on certain issues and, and rise pretty quickly by focusing on some niche, you know, issues. Because uh, it's yeah. not 50% mm-hmm. plus one that you need to get in a primary necessarily if it's a crowded primary and uh Mm -hmm. and then if you if you're in a district that is overwhelmingly republican or overwhelmingly democrat it's just getting that nomination is the key uh, right anything so yeah i think primary is a is a better um or easier way to go about it and the way these districts are drawn right now it's one or the other democrat or republican not a lot of in-betweens yeah yeah that's right that's right and um and the research has pretty much borne that out. Um, you can you can persuade voters in a primary. Um, in the general, it's really tough. So this this data, this information that the Analyst Institute is really working on, is that do they uh, keep that private? Is that something that uh, that only those that are in that organization know, or how do they get that out to to campaigns to show what some of the best practices are? They're pretty aggressive. The the um, uh, they hold regular meetings with presentations on important issues. After the election, they'll have a, a big GOTV summit that sometimes is two days long. Mm-hmm. Uh, they'll also have a big persuasion summit where they go through all the research on that. And they also do events all around the country. Um, their outreach efforts are pretty robust. And this is a pretty, this organization has 30 employees and, and uh, three or four million dollar budget. 
The, you, um, you see that a lot of uh, consultants have really embraced um, this stuff because, again, whenever you whenever you prove something, it, it sometimes it hurts phone vendors or you know direct mail vendors uh, don't like some of the results, and TV people really don't like some. Well, of the results. well, yeah. I mean, uh, uh, some of their, for instance, robocalls. You know, right. everyone does robocalls. Mm-hmm. They do them because you get to the last minute, and it's the only thing left you can spend That's your right. money on. I've done a million the, uh, of them, but I don't think uh, I don't think they've done anything. No, there's there there's not any evidence that shows either for turnout or mm-hmm. persuasion that they've ever done any good. The uh, election day calls, you know, we still do those things, but that's in the same category. It's zero. So people, so you know, people who do these things for a living uh, um, are. <laughs> Are not enthusiastic backers of the Analyst Institute, right. but but their their research penetrates and it affects campaign. It shapes campaign tactics. Oh, I agree. I think that I think more people and you know candidates need to have this information at their fingertips as well to you know cycle through the mm-hmm. bullshit of the what what they're being told. And uh, if I had a dollar no, for it, how many times people tell me how great robocalls are, I mean, it's like telling me to buy Emory boards, you know, because uh, ladies use those. And <laughs> No, it, yeah, it used to be, it used to be the way you got business was that you went down to the DNC and made a big presentation with no data behind what you were doing. And, uh, and you know, it was all hoopla and mm-hmm. flash and bravado. And um, it's you know there's still a lot of that in politics, mm-hmm. but uh, but but now there's measurement, and uh, and and that's been really important, and it's completely reshaped how we do a lot of things. Gotcha. What do you look at at 2020, and what what are you seeing that you could predict is is going to happen? That maybe some changes in this election cycle, some new technologies and new ways of doing things. Of course, we're living in a weird environment right now. Uh, but do you predict yeah. anything that's unusual coming up? Um, I mean, I think uh, every now and then Trump will do something that I think is really offensive or, or really stupid. And, uh, and I'll go to realclearpolitics.com and I'll check what the polling is showing. And it almost never shows that he gets hurt by any of this, mm-hmm. that he can say practically anything, do practically anything. And he's got some number in the low 40s um, uh, percentage of the voters who just don't care what he says or does. They're for him. And there's there's uh, some number in the low 50s who feel just the opposite about him. And if Democrats... Uh, and, and and I think his presence um, in American politics generated a lot of turnout among groups that do not traditionally vote in a midterm election. Mm-hmm. I'm referring to to turnout in 2018. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, I think the Democrats should win this election as long as they don't screw it up. Mm-hmm. But we have... <laughs> We have a great capacity for that. True. The, uh, you know, at one point when it looked like Bernie Sanders was uh, was our nominee, and uh, and I'm sitting there shaking my head, uh, not because I really dislike Bernie Sanders. I, you know, he's an eloquent spokesperson 
about a lot of very serious problems that are happening in this country. But he is not the guy to beat Donald Trump. Right. Um, and um, uh, but, you know, we had the South Carolina primary and everything turned around. Um, but, you know, there's a little bit of a of a twitch in all of this. Because I think during times like this, when the country is in crisis, people tend to gravitate toward the stronger personality. Mm-hmm. And, you know, you compare Trump with Joe Biden and, and you know, Joe Biden did not have a great performance in the primaries. And when I say a great performance, you know, he had a great electoral performance. But as a candidate, he was not forceful. He was sometimes not clear in his expression. Um, But, but, you know, uh, but Trump has kind of fumbled this coronavirus thing. And, and, and I think some of the polling is showing it is having an effect. Um, So I, I think as long as the Democrats don't make really big mistakes, I I think uh, we'll certainly keep the house. We might take the Senate and, uh, and we should get the white house back. I agree, and I almost want to pinch myself not to be so optimistic, but I absolutely agree, and I also agree that the bigger personality almost always wins. You know, the ones that that seem the strongest, very seldom in in presidential politics does the the weaker personality come come out on top, and it's, you just can't beat Trump on stronger personality and bravado. Uh, But competence right now in a crisis matters a lot. You know, and and I think yeah, that how he's handled Trump, it. Trump has added other elements to, um, um, you know, he's here's the thing. I mean, you 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 want an example of what strong leadership can do. On the day that Donald Trump announced for president, roughly half of the Republican electorate was for um, a path to citizenship and some form of immigration mm-hmm. reform. Two thirds of the Republican electorate were for free trade, and uh, and Trump came out with his announcement. If he'd read the polls, or maybe he did read the polls, but if he'd read the polls and said, "Oh, this is what I have to do," he never would have gotten elected. Uh, um, yeah. But but he came out strongly, spoke out against these two issues where a majority of the Republican electorate were on the other side. When he accepted the nomination for president, these numbers were completely flipped. The, um, uh, the opposition to a path to citizenship and immigration reform was, uh, I think, somewhere in the 60s. And the, um, and, and, and the, uh, the free trade support within the Republican electorate had fallen to roughly a third. So he, he, you know, not doing like all these other candidates and reading the polls and formulating his, uh, um, uh, his positions accordingly, he, he got out front and flipped the positions. What do you think um, that says? And that's you, how strong he, what do you think that says though? What does it? I mean, what do you think that says about well, I, leader, about, about, uh, politicians and what's possible and, and people? Well, I, I think one thing it says it, it, is that people um, 
people don't know what they want. And someone gets out there and doesn't sound like everyone else, mm-hmm. and they, they want to follow this person. Um, it's like a black it. swan. It's a black swan kind of effect. Yeah. It's I mean, a, let's face it. I mean, you uh, know, when you look at this presidential field in 2016 at the start of the primaries, who who else who looked more like a black swan than Donald Trump? Right. Right. I mean, do you in your years of politics, do you see politicians that I'm not saying ones that never have a possibility of winning, but those that take, you know, some big chances, don't listen to the polls, don't follow conventional wisdom. Do they sometimes have an edge um, over others because their their maneuvers aren't predictable? Yeah, there's so few of those that that it's hard for me to draw conclusions. (laughs) And and again, I think that's what made Trump uh, uh, so successful. You know, I, I remember, you know, when he got the questions about all the women, he goes, well, I don't believe in political correctness. And you could you could just hear the cheer among these uh, uh, white, non-educated, uh, non-college educated men across the country cheering that 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 phrase and even you know and the republicans they feel betrayed by their leaders they you know they don't understand why we can't cut the government in half and why we can't do all these things that fox news tells us are so easy to do and 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 that when all the other candidates were reading the same polls and uh sounding the same way and here's donald trump comes in and kicks over the coffee table and turns the sofa upside down and, 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 you know, they liked it. Yeah. And all these, you know, Republican politicians have been, you know, talking about pro-life and in an abortion and not one of them has done anything about it. You know, they just right. they talk about it. Yeah, no, that's, that's a sore spot with, with these Republican yeah. voters. Yeah. I mean, I, I agree. I mean, I think that, but on the Democratic side too, you know, we've we seem to nominate the safe, the safe, the safe choice. You know, whether it's Al Gore uh, over Bradley or you know John Kerry over Dean, and I, you know, I supported all those candidates. I supported Kerry. I supported Gore. I supported Biden this election, and I have a lot of friends who are on the opposite end. So we need to, you know, but a lot, you know, people look at no, Barack Obama. You know, Barack Obama is a conventional politician who. Was no, not was. a conventional biography, but he was a conventional politician. I think that's that's what gets mm-hmm. lost with a lot of people. He's not. A, he wasn't a Bernie Sanders. Yeah. you know. Right. No, we've never. We've nominated George McGovern in nineteen seventy-two. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's the only only time we've deviated. Yeah, and I think that election is a, is a good testament to where you know polls showed that that folks that were against the war. Uh, for all the way up until the almost the end, where you know McGovern had a lot of those voters. He had a lot of the voters that uh, were against Nixon. But by the end of the election, Nixon had all those voters. Uh, even though even the voters that were against the war and uh, with polling had switched right. to him because of competence and how they ran their campaign. Yeah, yeah. No, that was that was that was a factor, and and you know he had other positions besides the war that, that were out there and you know that Nixon was able to use to uh, 
characterize him, if not as an extremist, but as someone who was at the far left end of the spectrum. Right. Well, in, in all the years of, of politics, what have you what advice would you give uh, candidates running for office right now? I know there's a you could probably last a long time talking about that, but what what's if you narrowed it down, what if somebody came to you and said, Listen, I'm thinking about running for office, let's stay for Congress, what advice would you give them? I would say I would say that in this day and age, message and how you get your message out uh, personally and in the press and um, in all the ways other than advertising has become increasingly important. And that if you want to read the polls and uh, if, if you want to have a message that gets out, that people talk about, if you want to generate word of mouth, which is really the most powerful advertising of all, you, you need to be original and you need to think less about the polling and more about what you actually believe. So be authentic, be who you are and what you believe. Be, be who you are. And if you end up sounding a little different from all of the rest, that's a good thing. I think that's you need to advice. ask yourself, you, you know, yeah, I used to say we would have when I was doing this work, we would have a campaign and we would have a message meeting. And our message meeting, the first thing we would try to do is to say, how do we summarize the argument for this candidate in one sentence? And it can't have a bunch of hanging participles and ands and compounds and all of that. A really simple statement of why you would support this candidate. Now, if you're running for state legislature, the sentence is about all that the voters are gonna be able to keep in their heads. You know, if you're running for president, it's a more complicated thing, but, but you do still want a simple statement of, um, uh, of why someone should support this candidate. And it can't be vanilla, you know, it needs to be, it needs to say something important to the voters. And in this day and age, the advertising is basically broken. Um, TV ads were the very best way to communicate with voters, both as an advertising vehicle, because it was more robust. You could have music and sound and motion, and you could listen to the, to the voice of the candidate. And, and that candidate looking into the camera, you can't do that in mail. But now half... Of the half of the American population is not watching any broadcast television, right. and uh, and of of those who are, a major percentage of those record their shows and watch them. So you just no longer have the ability to penetrate, and you're stuck with mail, which um, would you know, which research shows can be effective in moving some points, um, um, but but it's hard. It's hard. And, and, and if it's hard, if it's hard to deliver your information on advertising and it's hard to get coverage of the electorate, you need to be original and interesting and you need to be interesting enough that someone will say to a neighbor, do you hear about this guy? This is what he said. And how many, uh, how many candidates meet that standard? 
Very few. <laughs> Very few. Because people right. that, that are in politics and want to run for politics, I think personality-wise, that's just not kind of who some of them are. Yeah, no, no. And, and and they're afraid to be different. Right. It feels like a risk. Right. And it is to some extent. It's a risk. You know, if if, if you're a Republican running for state legislature and you're in a 62% Republican district, you know, you don't have to do this. You just have to right. keep it quiet and say, he, he loves America. He's, you know, he's right. for fiscal integrity, you know, <laughs> all, all of that stuff. Mm-hmm. And that'll get you in. But if you're in a neck and neck race and, um, and you got to win voters, you really have to think about how you deliver a message that will move beyond the advertising vehicles. It will move on the social media. I agree. I, you know, that's I think, not buying it. I think Facebook, ad, I think that, Facebook Live an, is one of the best things you can do because it doesn't cost you really any money. You can target individual voters. Mm-hmm. And even if you know the video is shaky while you're doing it, that's a good thing. It's not a bad thing. And, uh, and I remember once I, I was in, I was in it when Mark Warner was considering running for president. I went to a focus group for him in, um, in Iowa, and I was so stunned. We showed them uh, two clips of Mark, and one of them was, you know, he had his tie on, and he was delivering a speech, and it was very polished and strong. And he had this other one where he's, like, flopping his arms around and saying this and jumping around and looked completely unpolished. All the voters loved the unpolished version and hated the other one, and I would have completely predicted otherwise because um, it's authentic. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's right. And I you know, I get too caught up, you know, if I do a little video email, I get too caught up in doing my lighting and doing everything. <laughs> Fact of the matter is you get better response uh-huh. rate by just doing it simple, not having a teleprompter, not doing any of those things. And I think that's one of the powers of Donald Trump, that he doesn't sound like a politician. He doesn't look like a politician. And that, he didn't run any TV ads in no. the primary campaign. No. Well, hell, uh, hell CNN had every rally on you know live full coverage. He didn't have to. Yeah. The the um, uh, here's an example from the mail that I think confirms uh, 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 this observation, particularly about the polish that goes into a video. The um, what we've learned is that all this colorful mail, polished mail, these big pictures and dramatic graphics and all of this doesn't work nearly as well in most contexts as an eight and a half by eleven sheet of paper folded in half, addressed on one side, and you open it up in the middle, and there is a four or five paragraph letter. This works better. Yeah. All the social pressure mail. Yeah. It looks like something that came from the government or something. It doesn't look like somebody came from the mail firm. Yeah. Well, it also looks like something that wasn't paid for by a billionaire. Right. Those NRA cards are brilliant. That's been going out for years. You know, the, the little orange postcards are damn cheap. I, I mean, they've got to be two cents to print those things. And yep. they're, you know what they are every year? They're a little orange, a little card, you know, with big black uh-huh. ink, and it tells you who to vote for. And they stand out. They're right. simple and they're cheap. And I always thought that was brilliant because... And people. Yeah, people see them and they know exactly what they are. Yeah, NRA they, could spend yeah, a bunch of money on like, fancy mail, but when it comes to that, they don't. Right. The um, um, being 
advertising is uh, is a little poisonous. Yeah, because it doesn't look authentic. It doesn't. You try and the first your defenses go up, and if anything that looks like it's political, that's coming to your mm-hmm. to your mailbox with a bunch of kids on right. it, and I've done tons of that mail. <laughs> I mean, just because it looks pretty, it looks nice, and and your client likes yeah. it because it looks nice. The client likes it, but in the, yeah. in the business, in the business, the consultants they don't want. They're afraid to do the letters because they're afraid if they do the letters, the the client will think, "Well, I can do this, can do right?" And um, and and you know, and the candidates they like. They like the big, colorful, fancy stuff because it makes them feel bigger and more important. Right. But they they uh, love the billboards. They love the big billboards out there that cost a bunch of money just because they could see it, you know? Mm-hmm. And I don't think billboards do very much, even in rural areas anymore. But everybody loves buying those things because it's it's proof that, uh-huh. that they're actually spending money and it's proof that there's an actual campaign. But Now, are there still... Are there still these? These I saw some of the billboards that someone was doing on uh, on McConnell mm-hmm. in Kentucky. Mm-hmm. Are these things still up? Oh yeah, it was hilarious. Oh yeah, you know? I mean people have been doing this actually for years. But yeah, some of it just got some national publicity. But you know we've had local people put up bill <laughs> put up billboards about Mitch McConnell. Yeah, yeah, yeah. there was that one of oh. him and his wife in their in their tuxedos. Yeah, and uh, <laughs> and I can't remember the headline, but it was something like. How y'all doing? We're doing great. <laughs> yeah. I mean, they're hilarious. And, you know, the thing about Mitch McConnell, like, ah, you know, my God, I mean, my whole life has been a. a Is he going to win? You know, I, I, I never count out Mitch McConnell. I never count out Mitch McConnell. Uh, you know, Amy McGrath is going to get the nomination on the Democratic side. She's a former you know, Navy pilot, colonel. She ran for Congress two years ago and lost the race. I think she should have won. Um, but. Yeah, I think she has a shot. It's just, you know, you can't look at Mitch McConnell's polling and, and know what that's going to be. Every He's upside down every election cycle because no one likes Mitch McConnell. Mm-hmm. Not Repu- Republicans will tell you, I can't stand Mitch McConnell. You know, he's been there too long. Mm-hmm. But when it comes to voting uh, for him, he does such a good job, dis- you know, disqualifying his opponent. And right. he's had the great fortune of running against a slew of Democrats that just didn't know what they were doing, you know, didn't know how to handle uh-huh. him and underestimated. Right. I mean, the man's been underestimated. No, he's a really ever. smart guy. He's a really smart guy. And, um, um, you're going to have to do it right. And he's a good, po- I mean, you know, there's a guy that, uh, Matt Jones, who's a radio guy here in Kentucky, he was thinking about running against him. And he, Matt is very popular with UK fans. I'm a Louisville fan, but he's a huge following with UK fans because that's what he does. He's a sports radio guy. And he came to talk with me uh-huh. uh, a few months ago because he was wanting to run. Um, and, you know, Schumer and others were uh, were talking to him. But he, he was saying, well, in Hardin County, where you live, you know, where Fort Knox is, you know, he Mitch McConnell, he doesn't come around here much, does he? He doesn't. He's forgotten the area. And I said, no, actually, Mitch, <laughs> Mitch McConnell is here all the time. You know, Mitch McConnell uh-huh. is a good nuts and bolts politician, and right. uh, he comes to you know the, the places where he has to come. He shows up, uh, he delivers pork, mm-hmm. and he makes sure he's in the local mm-hmm. tiniest little papers all the time about the projects he's bringing into the community, and he keeps doing it for years. 
So, you know, I think to right. beat an incumbent, you got that incumbent has to have certain certain qualities. One, they have to be a little bit out of touch um, and kind of forget where they come from and not take care of business back home. And what's helped Mitch McConnell all these years is that that's, that doesn't describe Mitch McConnell. Mitch McConnell comes back right. all the time. And um, love, or, love him or hate him, he's not a bad politician. And he has no charm. Zero charm. Um, mm-hmm. he's, he's not a good speaker, but you know, he beats these Democrats because he does the things you're supposed to do. He raises a lot of money and he's not afraid to take your, rip your throat out. And, uh-huh. uh, and the, the ads he runs are oftentimes funny. You know, he kind of makes fun of the person. Mm-hmm. That's very effective. Um, very effective. Yeah. Oh, I remember those ones he ran against Hutchinson. Huddleston, the dog. Right, right, right. Huddleston, yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, those were classics. Those were absolutely classics. And, um, you know, even going back in the 70s when he ran for judge executive in, in Jefferson County, um, use humor. And um, and that, mm-hmm. that works. You know, and when he got elected, I think there were two Republican judge executives in Kentucky. Now we have, they have the majority of judge executives. And he's always done a good job of building the Republican Party. Whereas the Democrats, being mm-hmm. the majority all the years, we have all these factions. And mm-hmm. uh, Senator Ford, I don't, you know, I don't think he was the most, you know, giving to other Democrats necessarily all the time. And and you had other factions, and it's um, it it hurt us in the long run. But culturally, the ship mm-hmm. was going to go Republican, regardless. You know, at some point, right. No, I can't imagine Kentucky's moving in our direction. No. No, I mean we won the governor's race uh, this last year, uh-huh. uh, and we, you know, but, we but won. You, and you had a really, we had a governor that you had was a just, bad oh my, governor. He was just unbelievable, unbelievable. Um, and even that, uh-huh. we we you know we held on to win less than less than one percentage point with that guy running against that guy. Mm-hmm. So it's a it's a tough thing in in uh, these midwestern and southern states, but uh, the right circumstance, you could beat them. I think Mitch McConnell, if he was ever going to lose, I think this this election cycle uh, would be it. But there are so many Trump is so popular in Kentucky. I just think it's going to be mm-hmm. very hard for a Democrat to beat anybody at the top of the ticket because of the Trump vote. Well, yeah, and you look at again, you look at at what happened in two thousand sixteen. Yes, no, no state split their ticket. No. no. No, it wiped us out in Kentucky. I mean, it, we lost the legislature. We lost the state legislature the first time in 64 years. Uh, you know, Democrats lost in in uh, districts that, you know, I've never lost before. Solid incumbents. Mm-hmm. And got beat by people who never campaigned. Um, Republicans that never uh-huh. campaigned won in these races against entrenched Democratic incumbents because of the Trump turnout. Because he got those, right. you know, white voters out. And mm-hmm. that's, I don't think that's going to change very much in 2020 in Kentucky. I'd be shocked if, if yeah. I mean, it would, it will in the margin. I think Biden will get more votes than, than Hillary Clinton did. But, you know, I just don't see a, a massive um, switching. Right now, like you said, it's no, you know, people switch, are. Switching is, yeah, it's not what. Going on in politics today. <laughs> yeah. Well, how? Thank you so much it's for really being. Really sad, a, you know. When it I is first sad. Got to Washington, I, we we had. 
I mean, the biggest problem that the Democrats had when I was in Washington was getting all their people behind an issue or, you know, because they're all talking with Republicans and they would split off and vote. You know, you don't see any of that anymore. No. And uh, it's uh, the type of people who are running for office are vastly inferior to the, the, the people, the quality of human beings who were holding his offices in the late 80s and early 90s. I think that's correct. You know, even, you know, Ronald Reagan in, in 1981 and 82, you know, got his tax bills passed in the Democratic House, you know, and you had, yeah. you had Democrats who who went across the aisle and voted for certain things uh-huh. and uh, you had conservative Democrats and, you know, in both mm-hmm. sides and you had liberal Republicans, you know, you had Lowell Weicker, you had people mm-hmm. like that who could cross party lines often on certain issues. Yeah. You do not have that now. You do not have that at all. Yeah. It's a it's a no, rare... it's a tragedy. I I have for four years I have been trying to get the DNC interested in doing experiments to explore how to reach out to young people. When I say young people, I mean people who are in party registration states are not re- registered with a party, who are under twenty five, and try to convince them to uh, become a Democrat. And uh, and this is easily testable. You send them the forms to do it. You go look at the list after you've done the mailing, you know, give it a couple months and, uh, and count heads and see what it costs to switch someone from an um, independent to a Democrat. If you can do that, here's what happens. First of all, th- there's research that shows that if someone makes a decision to become affiliated with one party or another, they begin a process of adopting, adapting their beliefs to fit the party that they have chosen. That's number one. Number two, these registrations are almost permanent. Someone did a study right after 9-11. There was a surge in Republican registration uh, among people who were registering for their first time. Mm -hmm. This lasted about two months. Uh, Someone went back 11 years later in California and looked at those people who registered during that time period to see what the party, um, um, uh, what the party composition of that piece of electorate uh, of the electorate was 11 years later, exactly the same. The, um, it's almost a permanent lifetime um, decision. And so if all of that's true and 90% of our voters are not splitting tickets, uh, shouldn't we be exploring how, particularly with, with less informed, unaffiliated, younger voters, shouldn't we be exploring how to, how to convince them to, um, uh, to change their registration from unaffiliated to uh to Democrat, the absolutely. benefits of that absolutely. Are, people, I mean, are people enormous, decide, right? And it's actually been a lot of research about this, uh, and that when people choose something, they choose it, and then they adopt them <laughs> their beliefs around what they chose. Chosen. I mean, it would seem yeah. like it would be the opposite. It's like people would come to something with beliefs and then decide to be pro-life. No, it's actually the opposite. Um, the, there's been research 
actual sociological research that people half the people that have joined the pro-life movement aren't pro-life to begin with. They joined for other reasons, and then they adapt their their belief system after they've joined that social group. Same with politics, I right. think. Yeah. Uh-huh. No, it, and, and, and you know, if, if, if the voters have completely changed how they make candidate choices, why is it that we are still spending all of our campaign money on candidate on telling people about candidates when 90% of the voters don't care at all. All they want to know is just this person a Republican or a Democrat. Right. That's true. I mean, and you know, I think most of us, I mean, I think you, I'd rather you, your mom was a Democrat, your dad was a Republican or maybe it was vice versa, but most, you know, you were, when you were a child, you're a Republican. You know, I was a child when I was a Democrat, when I was a child, I became a Democrat because my parents are Democrats. We talked about politics long before I knew about issues. And I, you know, that mm-hmm. happens in people's households. You know, you have generations that are certain, yep. you know, one party, you become that because you're in that household and sort of your whole life view of issues and things. You're not born a Democrat, you're not born a Republican. You know, you, right. most of the times you choose it because the environment you're in and then you adapt your ideas and your worldview to what you've chosen. Mm-hmm. That is a very powerful lesson to to learn and to understand about human psychology. And I agree, getting those early registrations and moving people from independent when they were young to Democrat is far more cost effective <laughs> in the long run than anything else we probably could ever do. Yeah, and, and we have such an issue contrast with these people. You know, we believe in fighting climate change. They don't. We believe in making college affordable, if not free. They don't. You know, we agree in student law. You know, you take the issues that the young people really care about, and they're all our issues. We yeah. own them. And, and really, you know, people – the partisanship is so crazy that people are probably more likely to believe a, a contrast between the parties than they are between two human beings. Sure, sure. And, and I think what what's also proven in some of the things we talked about is, you know, if we get them to vote Democrat, if we get them to register as Democrats, you know, their whole view of, you know, paying for college or health care will be shaped by the fact that they are a D. If they choose to be an R, mm-hmm. they, they will probably, because they decided to be an R, would have opposite viewpoints. Because they, they say, I have That's to be this. Uh, yeah, that is, yep. that is amazing. Kind of like, you know, Trump taking over the Republican Party, those people that one day were for free trade, well, now free trade's horrible. <laughs> you know, or we shouldn't right. do free trade. Yeah. That is, that is a human, that is an interesting insight to human um, uh, activity that uh, that's fascinating. Mm-hmm. Well, thank you very much for being on this. I cannot thank you enough. I think this is a great conversation. I think candidates that listen to this, Democrat, Republican, Independent, if you listen to to your interview, are going to learn a lot from what you had to say. Good. And what what are you doing right now, by the way? Good. What are some of the things you're working on now? I am trying to finish a book. Um, you know, I've written three novels mm-hmm. and uh, science fiction, and novels. I'm work- yeah. well. The first two were young adult fantasy novels. The third one. Uh, which came out about two years ago is a political thriller. And the one I'm working on now 
is a political thriller, but it is everything plays out against the background of real events about the vulnerability of all these voting machines and how easy it is to to uh, change the counts and how hard it is to catch anyone for doing it. And um, uh, so I have all these episodes that are actually actually happened uh, played out against a fictional plot where where a uh, a a young female reporter becomes obsessed with this issue and actually ends up in the book stealing a voting machine at two o'clock in the morning on election day so she can open it up and get someone to inspect the code and see what's happening. Um, and uh, it's, I think it's, it's, it's obviously very topical. Every time I Absolutely. tell people this is what I'm writing about, they'll, they go, oh, I've, I've gotten a first-rate national editor, and he is, uh, uh, he's kind of transforming the book, and um, um, I'm way behind where I should be. But hopefully in the next month I'll finish and we'll get this thing moving. That sounds um, fantastic. But but yeah, I think it's it's certainly the best stuff I've written. The um um the, there's also there's also in this book a president, a guy who runs for president on the idea that, as a democrat, on the idea that if we don't if we don't learn to talk with each other, we'll never get anything done. Social security's going to go bankrupt. Medicare is going to be insolvent in six years. This is all true. The, um, um, you, you know, we have to change the culture of Washington if we want to save our democracy and save our country. And of course, in a in a democratic nomination process where all the lefties go to the polls and vote, and the moderates or don't, the um, he would not he never would have won the nomination except that. The uh, two leading candidates both fell to spurious scandals, right? You mm-hmm. know, the kind of shit that gets trumped up mm-hmm. and and uh, um, happens in politics. So he gets the nomination. He goes in. He fixes Social Security. He, he, he uses all these really unconventional tactics. And then his eighth month in office, uh, the New York Times writes a story based upon the uh, – uh, based upon this voting machine, that he really didn't win the election, that the Wisconsin machines had been rigged and had shifted three points from uh, um, from his opponent to him. And he had no idea whatsoever. In fact, the reason, <laughs> the reason this happened was that some Russian agent was uh, the most beautiful woman in the world, found this guy who was the quality control person for the voting machine company and had the last look at all the codes and was fixing things for the Republicans. But she started fucking him and he would do and then he was ready to do anything she wanted. And um, they sold it. They sold the election to the Congo because in the Congo, they have um, uh, they have this mineral called coltan which is used in all sorts of technology, your phone, your computer, all these technology products. And Dodd-Frank has a little known provision in there that, that uh, um, um, 
requires the monitoring of cold drain movement in and out of the country and had dramatically cut down on on the control of the mineral by the by the militia so the congress and neither candidate probably even knew about you know this uh this cold tan provision but but the republican was against dodd frank and the democrat of course was for it so they they sent 80 million dollars to buy the election <laughs> to protect their cold tan taxes well how this sounds like a movie it sounds like this absolutely could be a movie right. <laughs> Might be. Might Absolutely. Be. Yeah. I, I want to read that book because that sounds really cool. Oh, uh-huh, good. Well, I'll get back to work on it then. <laughs> <laughs> well, Hal, thank you very much for being on and, and, uh, okay. and sharing your wisdom. Uh, All thank right. You. Thanks, Matt. Take care. It's been a pleasure. Bye. Want to learn more campaign secrets? Want to learn how to start raising money for your campaign, even during these uncertain and unpredictable times? You want to know how to craft a winning campaign message? Then you need my free ebook, Campaign Fundraising Secrets. Head on over to campaignfundraisingsecrets.com now. Put in your name and email, and you can download a copy of this easy to read and implement guide. While you're there, sign up for your free seven day campaign secrets challenge. It'll walk you through how to campaign in the middle of this crisis, creating your fundraising system, crafting a great campaign message and much, much more. Hope you learned a lot today, and I'll see you next time on the Campaign Secrets Podcast. Take care.